and invite you to turn to the portion of scripture that we read earlier on in Isaiah chapter 9. Isaiah chapter 9. Now, when we think of uh, London at Christmas time, there are a number of things that spring to mind, aren't there? You think London at Christmas, and you think of the lights in Regent Street, maybe? Or you think of the sort of winter wonderland at Hyde Park, or maybe that that, uh, enormous Christmas tree that they've got in Trafalgar Square. Well, one of the other sort of quintessentially festive things that that we often sort of associate with this city is, of course, the performance of Handel's Messiah at the Royal Albert Hall. You know, for many people, I suppose visitors and tourists to the the city in particular, this rendition of Handel's Messiah is one of the highlights, high points of the whole festive period, isn't it? Well, this morning in our time together... going to do is is look at the sort of the the scriptural basis you know we're going to look at the the text for Handel's Messiah if you like because we're going to look at this prophecy that you've got there in front of you in Isaiah chapter 9 a prophecy written hundreds and hundreds of years before the birth of Jesus Christ and very simply we're going to ask what is this prophecy Isaiah chapter 9 Handel's Messiah what's it all about What is it all about? What's the plan? Very simple. So, friends, let's make a start. Let's consider a a first point here. This This is our first heading. That the rejection of God leads to darkness. You got it? The rejection of God, it leads to darkness. Now, we are a fairly educated bunch, I think. And we know, don't we, that if we are going to understand a portion of Scripture, uh, particularly in the Old Testament, that it's vital that we get to grips with, it, with the context into which that, that passage of Scripture is written. We know that if we're going to understand a portion of the Bible, that the contemporary setting is, is crucial, it is very important. So obviously, what we've got to ask here, What's going on in the background? What is the lead up to Isaiah chapter 9? What's going on in the background here? Well, chapter 9 is part of a a, a much larger section of Isaiah. And it's it's a, a portion that stretches back a couple of chapters. And that whole sort of larger section is dominated by a decision that King Ahaz of Judah makes, okay? So a portion of scripture that is dominated by one decision that King Ahaz of Judah makes. Sounds intriguing, maybe? What is it all about? Okay, follow me on this, please. What you've got at this point in history are three countries... That are one on top of the other, geographically speaking at least, okay? So at the bottom, in the south, you've got Judah. And this is where our focus is, you know, this is where Jerusalem was. So you've got Judah. And then above that, you have got Israel. 
And then above that, you've got what we know as certainly as Syria. So three countries, one on top of the other. And you see, all of these countries were, at this point, under threat. They were under threat from the Assyrian Empire. So picture it, you've got these three countries, one on top of the other, and then you've got the bad guys, the real bad guys, the Assyrian Empire. And it is moving west, and it's moving south, and it is now looming large over these three states. Now, because of this, what Israel and Syria, so that's your middle country, your north country, what they did was go south. They went south to Judah. They went south to Jerusalem and Israel and Syria. They spoke to Ahaz, the king in Judah. You know what they said? They said, right, Ahaz, how about this? How about if our three countries get together? How about we sign a pact to stand up against this sort of looming threat from the Assyrians? And you see, the, the uh, Israel and Syria, at this point, they were godless people. And they made, made it very clear to Ahaz that if he didn't agree, if he didn't sign this treaty with them, that they were going to keep coming back. And they were going to try and conquer Jerusalem. So, I ask you folks, what do you think happens? What do you think goes down in this situation here? Well, at that point, what happens is that Isaiah, the prophet of the Lord, he enters the scene. Okay? Isaiah comes in, and in those words that we read in chapter 7, Isaiah brings a word from God to Ahaz. You get me? And Isaiah says to the king, he says, basically, Ahaz, don't worry about this. You know, don't fret about this situation at all. Don't, don't stress about it. God has promised to protect the kinship. He's promised to protect the Davidic kinship. So don't worry, Ahaz. Don't go off signing treaties with the world. He says to Ahaz, trust in God. And God will deliver you from this problem. So, what do you think, folks? What is going to be the outcome? What do you think Ahaz does? Is he going to trust God? Is he going to trust the world? What is Ahaz going to do? Let me tell you. Believe it or not, what Ahaz does is reject God. We could probably tell that's what he do. But he also ignores Israel and Syria. What Ahaz does, believe it or not, is he signs a treaty. He goes away and signs a treaty with the advancing Assyrian army. And he goes to them. He goes to the, to the bad guys and he says if they are willing to act on his behalf, if the Assyrians are willing to go and defeat Syria and Israel, then do you know what he'll do? He will hand over the reins of power in Judah to them that Ahaz was willing to make Judah a vassal state of the Assyrians. I mean, it's mind-blowing. It's ridiculous. But of course, if you know the story, you know that that is exactly what does happen. This Assyrian army, it goes to Syria, defeats Syria, 
It takes control of Syria, takes control of some of the northern parts of Israel. This rejection of God, it leads to Judah. It leads to Jerusalem coming under the control of a godless and a pagan nation. Now, what are you thinking? Are you thinking this is kind of like being back at school? Is that what it feels like? Does it feel like you've got a sort of geography lesson and a history lesson sort of rolled into one? Does it, does it feel like that? If it does, I, I, you know, I kind of get it. I understand. But I would ask you, like you, to, to think about this. Do you see that the situation that confronted Ahaz, this situation to trust in God or trust in the world, that that is a decision that confronts every single one of us. The decision that confronts Ahaz, the decision to trust implicitly in God or to trust in the world, it is a decision that confronts you. Let's take the the Christians in the world, first of all. Okay. Do you see that that there's a point here where the pressure is kind of boiling up? Do you see that, you know, that the pressure is really on Ahaz here? Do you see there's a point that he can trust in the world and he can trust in God, one or the other, in the face of all this looming, mounting pressure. Now, ask yourself, under similar strains in your life, how do you respond? As a Christian, how do you respond? In your life, when, when things are boiling up, in your life, when things are really beginning to sort of pile up and, and loom over you, how do you, how do you react? Do you instantly and automatically turn to God? Is that, is that always how you respond? Or do you perhaps do as Ahaz does here? And when the pressure is on, do you turn to what the world has to offer? You know, when the pressure's on, Are you often having, let's say, one too many drinks to try and forget about these problems? You know, when the pressure's on, when things are looming over you for refuge, are you turning to a man or a woman that you perhaps definitely should not be turning to? When the pressure is on, do you look to the world? Do you look... For escapism? Or do you look to God? And then what about the, um, the other side of the coin? What about the, the, the unbeliever in the room here just now? What about the person here? You, who is not a, a Christian, do you see perhaps even more so that you are faced with a similar decision to this one that confronts Ahaz? Because you see, I think when we boil and distill everything down and we, we, we cut to the chase, what confronts Ahaz? What's in front of Ahaz is a question about his security, isn't it? Where is he gonna, where is he gonna turn? Is he gonna turn to the world, turn to God for his security? And really, folks, if you're not a Christian, please see that that is the essence 
of what you are confronted with this morning in the gospel of Jesus Christ. Where are you going to turn for your security? Where are you going to turn for your eternal security? Is it going to be to God? Or is it going to be to the world? Are you going to turn away from God? Are you going to be a person who refuses God Almighty and rejects him? You see, this isn't nonsense. This is a crucial question. A very crucial question because of what we see in the immediate background to Isaiah 9. Because you see, follow me here. There is a prevailing theme that you've got in front of you. It's a prevailing sort of theme that builds up and, and builds up here. And I don't know if, you, if you've got your Bibles there in front of you. If you do, and they're open, just do this with me. Have a look at the, the, the last few verses of chapter 8. Skim over those. Skim into the, the first few verses of chapter 9. And see if you can recognize the theme that you have. The last few verses of chapter 8. The, the first few verses of chapter 9. Do you see the theme? There's this theme of darkness. Darkness everywhere. Look, chapter 8, verse 20. What does it say? There is no light of dawn. There's darkness. Verse 22, it says there's distress, there is darkness, there is fearful gloom, there is utter darkness. Then you get into chapter 9, verse 1, it talks of gloom, it talks of darkness, it talks again of the shadow of death. Do you see, friends, the point that has been made in this section of Isaiah? If we reject God, as happens for Ahaz and his people, that leads to Darkness. You reject God, that leads to darkness from sin. It leads to the darkness of God's judgment. It leads to the the darkness from spiritual blindness. And just as Ahaz's rejection of God leads to sovereignty of Assyria over Judah, so to the rejection of God, well, it leads to the rule of sin over your life eternally. Do you see it? Do you get it? The background that we're dealing with here, the context here, it is of rejection of God leading to utter, inescapable blackness. There is darkness here. Okay, let's move on. Let's consider a second heading today. And I suppose you do have to wonder, don't you, um, how many people who are standing in the the queue in the Royal Albert Hall, how many of them realise the scale and the magnitude of the gloom that that, uh, sits behind Handel's Messiah, don't you? Let's consider a second heading. Let's consider that the grace of God, it leads to a reversal. The grace of God, it leads to a reversal. And here um, we get at last, perhaps, get to the, the actual text itself. You know, we've looked, in that first point, we looked at the background 
Well, here we get to the actual text of uh, chapter 9. And when we do that, what we see is really an entirely different picture to the one that we've just looked at. Because, folks, chapter 9 is a prophecy. It is a prophecy of how God acts to reverse that picture of darkness. Chapter 9 is a a prophecy of grace, if you like. Chapter 9 is a prophecy, really, I suppose, of the fulfillment of the gospel. And you see, that means what we've got here in chapter 9 is exciting, isn't it? What we've got here is exciting because it means that what we've got in chapter 9 is what God has done and will do for you, the people of God. Chapter 9 tells us of what God has done and what God will do for you if you are a believer. So what does, what are we told? What does chapter 9 tell us? Well, firstly, through the gospel, we see here that God brings light. Okay, God brings light. Now, we've had that horrendous uh, picture of rejection and darkness, haven't we? You know, But now, please just note the first word of the chapter. Do you see the, 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 the adversative first word of chapter 9? Do you see what it is? We've had all this sin! And we've had this, this, this picture of blackness, this picture of darkness. Now, what's the first word? Nevertheless. Nevertheless. For those who trust in the Lord, what we told, there will be no more gloom. Friends, God is promising here a great light. God is promising dazzling illumination. And did you notice where that new dawn comes from? Did you see that in verse 1? Have a look. This new light, it comes from Zebulun and Naphtali. Zebulun and Naphtali. Not just the places that were captured by the Assyrians in their invasion, but of course also the places from where hundreds of years later Jesus Christ would be born. Now I ask you this morning, do you see what is being said there? Do you see what is being promised there? It is a reversal of the darkness of sin. That's what's being promised here. Here God promises through Jesus Christ to act. Here God promises to speak and to speak into the repentant hearts of darkness. And what is God going to say? Through Jesus Christ he is going to say, let there be light. Let be light. So there's the first thing here is, is a picture of darkness being reversed. In the gospel, God is going to bring light. But more than that, we see here in the gospel that God also promises to bring increase. God promises to bring increase. Now, I don't know if 
this was what it was like for you when, when you were growing up. Um, but when I was younger, on Christmas Day, our family always, always seemed to have one of those enormous, massive Toblerone bars. You know the ones you get? Absolutely huge things. We always seem to have one of those kicking about. And you know how it is on Christmas Day. We shouldn't, but we probably tend to eat more than we would normally when it gets to Christmas Day. So, you know, first thing in the morning, that Toblerone bar looks fairly huge, but you get to about sort of half past three, four o'clock in the afternoon, and, and slowly but surely that massive Toblerone bar is no longer massive, and it is reduced greatly. Well, you see, for the people of God, it must have felt as though that was what was happening to the promised land. You see? I mean, through conflict and through strife with the likes of Assyria, slowly and surely, bits and pieces of Israel were being cut off. They were being cut off and taken away. Yet, listen, just just look and see what they hear from God in verse 3. You know, bits and pieces have been picked off Israel, Zebulun, Naphtali, it's away. And yet, look, verse 3, God promises he will enlarge. That's the word. He's going to enlarge the, the nation. So not only do you have this promise of reversal from darkness to light, but now you've got a further promise. Now you've got more. Now this reduction that they're experiencing, God again promising to act. I'm going to reverse this. And now there's going to be this elaborate expansion that's spoken of here. Now, what do you think? What's that referring to there? Are we talking about some geographical expansion and enlargement for the country of Israel? Do you think that is what is being spoken of there? Well, it's not. You see, Luke in verse 1 to see what Galilee is called here. Do you see this? Galilee is called Galilee of the Gentiles. Now, I could be wrong about this. I may be wrong about this, but I think it is the only time in the Old Testament that Galilee is spoken of like this in these terms. Galilee of the Gentiles. So, why here? Well, it's called that because what we have here is a promise from God to expand and extend his spiritual kingdom. What you've got there is a promise from God that the gospel is going out, not just for the Jews, but it's going out to the Gentiles too. That through this wonderful gospel, through this good news, what's God, God going to do? God is going to beam that saving light of Jesus Christ and he's going to beam it into every corner, every nook and cranny, every country in the whole world. Now, isn't that incredible? Every country, every nation is going to experience the gospel. Isn't that something that, that, that should give you and I hope? You know, that, that in heaven, when we get to glory, we're going to see that we're not just this sort of small band of insignificant believers that we've got here in the centre of London. No, when we get to heaven, we're going to see, no. God has acted. 
acted in power, amazing power in the gospel. And he has, as Hebrews tells us, he has and is bringing many, many sons to glory. See it? So we have darkness to light. We have got reduction to this glorious gospel expansion. A third aspect we see here is that this misery is going to be turned to joy. Misery to joy. And there is misery here. We make no mistake about that. There is misery here. See, Ahaz's rejection of God has led to all manner of pain for him and his people. I mean, if you skimmed over the end of chapter 8, you saw that. Because there's talk of distress for people. There is, there is talk of hunger. There is talk of rage. There is talk of anguish. And here God promises that he will reverse all of those things. He's going to change that misery for those who will trust in him, for the remnant. And if you take anything away this morning, please take away the key thing here. And it is that this joy that is spoken of in Isaiah chapter 9 is a joy that is linked to peace. It is a joy that's linked to peace. Do you see that? Verses 4 and 5. I mean, it's quite a substantial chunk of this prophecy. And it's all given over to peace. It's all given over to this cessation of war, to the end of conflict that God, through the gospel, is going to bring about. That peace that God will bring about is a peace that will lead to a lasting Joy. Peace to joy. Now, you're a Christian here? Are you? Well, you know that joy, don't you? You know that joy, that joy because of the peace that God has brought about in your relationship with him. You know that joy. But then... I tell you this. See, when your time comes as a Christian and death is upon you and it is your time to go to glory above, know this. Know that then you will truly know the fulfillment of this prophecy. You know, when death comes, When it's time for you to enter into heaven, you will know the explosion and the expansion and the multiplication and the increase of joy that's being talked of here. Because you see, in glory in heaven, there is everlasting peace. There is everlasting peace. A peace that leads to rejoicing evermore. Now can I ask you, 
the Christians here, do you appreciate what you've got in Isaiah chapter 9? Do you? Do you appreciate what God has done and what God is doing for you? Do you really, really appreciate the gospel? Do you? I mean, do you remember a, a kid's talk that I did uh, about a year ago? Now, I'd been given a book. I'd been given a book as a present. It was a Lord Byron book. I looked at it. It was interesting. And I liked it. But I popped it on the shelf. And it wasn't until much, much later on I went back to that book and I took it out and I realised what it was. I had been given a very, very early edition of a Lord Byron book. I had been given something as a present that was incredibly valuable, incredibly precious, and I had just discarded it and put it away. Now, is that what we're like with the gospel? Is it? We've been given something exciting. We've been given something precious, something of an immense and eternal value. Do we appreciate it? Or do we just pop it on the shelf and forget all about it? Is that what we do? You see, we are told here, and let's not get us wrong, we are told here that though we deserve death, though we deserve eternal destruction, though we deserve darkness, our future is amazing. Your future as a Christian is amazing. Because your future is one of light. And it is one of increase and fellowship. And your future is one of joy. We should praise God for the reversal that comes about in the gospel. So we've seen this rejection of Ahaz that leads to darkness. Then we've seen, <coughs> excuse me, then we've seen the grace of, of, of God. It leads to this reversal that we have here. We'll close with a, a short third point. Because we see here that the method of God leads to a savior. The method of God, it leads to a savior. And here we see, and these very, very famous words that end the chapter, we see by whom God brings this miraculous change about, don't we? We see by whom God works. Because you see, earlier in the book, in chapter 7, Isaiah is prophesied, and he's prophesied of the coming into the world of the one who was called Emmanuel. Isaiah has spoken. He's promised. He's, he's prophesied of the coming into the world of the Christ. The Savior. And what we see here in chapter 9 is Isaiah gives greater depth, if you like. He gives greater detail. He gives more of the identity of that coming Messiah. More of the identity of the coming Messiah. So what are we told? Well, there was great excitement um, in our street this week, up in Woodford Green, 
because I uh, witnessed an attempted burglary a, a few doors down. Very exciting. Um, I saw the guys um, trying to break in and then jumping into cars and trying to get a, sort of a mad getaway afterwards. And uh, I, I quickly wrote, I got the, the car registration and I wrote, wrote the number down. And uh, so I, I ran out of the house as quickly as I could down to the person's house. And it wasn't until uh, I was I ran out of the house, went down to him. It wasn't it wasn't until I was about halfway through giving this guy the registration number and telling him what had happened that, that, uh, that I realised what I was wearing <laughs> because uh, all this had happened, you know, first first thing in the morning, and uh, I had just ran out of the house and hadn't thought anything about it. And, uh, of course, my hair was sort of sticking up like this. And uh, I was wearing a, a Rudolph the Red Nose reindeer jumper. And I uh, hadn't put my belt on my trousers, so I was holding up my, my kecks. And I had a uh, massive pair of slippers on as well. So for my neighbour, I must have seemed like the most unlikely means of, of good news ever. Well, there's an element of that here, isn't there? Surely. You see, for Isaiah's audience, what they are told in Isaiah chapter 9, in this prophecy, it must have seemed like the most unlikely bit of news ever. It must have seemed like the most unlikely means of good news. You know, think about where they're at, these guys, the, the, those who are hearing from Isaiah. You know, given the threat that faces their country, from the Assyrian Empire, and given the threat of their their neighbours, given the power that, that faces them, if they're going to hear from God that they're going to be delivered, what are they going to expect? They're going to expect a, I don't know, a, a, a sort of mighty warrior, aren't they? If they're going to be delivered, they're going to they're expect a sort of mighty earthly king to come in and, and bring deliverance. But look at it. What are they told? Verse 6. A child. To them, a child is born. God promises victory through a kid. And friends, that there, that is the glory, the excellence of Christmas, isn't it? I mean, please don't be fooled into thinking that This time of year is all about us celebrating our nice little cute, meek and mild, nice little baby Jesus looking cute all wrapped up in a manger. I mean, don't be fooled into thinking that. I mean, yes, of course, he was a baby in all of his humanity. But remember, will you, that this was a baby like no other? That this baby was the son of God? That this baby was sent by the Father to die. He was sent by the Father to rise. He was sent to do that in order to bring victory, to deliver us from this darkness. Do you see it? The child at Christmas is a mighty, mighty deliverer from sin. And so why not? Uh, this morning, why not? Let's, 
let's end with, with Handel's Messiah, shall we? We, we end with that marvellous description that we have here of this child saviour. I mean, you know it, don't you? I mean, you can, I'm sure, almost hear the choir singing it, can't you? Wonderful. Counselor, mighty God, everlasting Father, the Prince of Peace. You can hear it, yes? You see, Christmas is about a wonderful Saviour. It is about one who should inspire awe in your heart, wonder in your heart. Christmas is about a mighty Saviour, about one who is strong enough to save. It is about an everlasting Father in the sense of Christ's care and his protection and his love of his children. And friends, Christmas is about a prince. It is about a prince, about the one through whom that joy-bringing peace comes. So we started off today, do you remember it? We started off with a picture of Assyria ruling Judah. We started off with this picture of sin ruling our hearts. Well, I hope that you've seen today that it is better by far to be under the rule of the one who has the eternal government on his shoulders. Because, you see, he can bring a reversal to your life. If anything, that's that's the message this morning. That he can bring reversal. That he can remove the darkness of your sin. Now, how can he do that? Because this child that we are talking about, he is eternally the light of the world. We profess this morning Jesus Christ. We profess this morning the great Messiah. Let's pray.